the hard shoulder on Newstalk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. Yes, we're continuing our series, The Last Post, here on News Talk, where every week we're going to hear about the life of someone who's recently died and you've probably never heard of them, but you should have heard of them. A huge amount of people, John Kelleher, told me last week how much they enjoyed your tale of Doris Buffett, Warren Buffett's sister, and the incredible life she led. So I know they're all looking forward, as much as I am, to this week's story. Who are we talking about and why? Well, his name is uh, or was Marvin Creamer, and he died at the age of 104. But what he did uh, during some of those 104 years is quite amazing. He was a, a mariner, a sailor, and he was the first person, apparently, to sail all around the world without any navigational instruments, not even a radio or a clock. Nothing? Nothing. No GPS, no sextant, nothing. Wow. Okay, we'll talk about that voyage in a minute. Tell us a bit more about him, his background. His background is that he was uh, he was born in New Jersey in 1916. And after high school, he was a, a teenager during the Depression. And he, uh, he did odd jobs, he sold insurance, and he worked as a mechanic. But he's al- he had always been transfixed by, as a, from early childhood by the stars. And he was fascinated by the, the thought that ancient mariners... Uh, had used them to steer their course, uh, you know, across the oceans, including, for example, St. Brendan, or Brendan mm. the Navigator, whom he referenced in, in, in later okay. life. So he thought and, and felt that he could do it. Okay. Uh, and he obviously had a bit of sailing background, uh, as yeah. well as being fascinated with the stars. I assume he was something of a sailor before he decided to sail around the world. <laughs> an avid uh, sailor, yeah. Okay. And all his life he was an avid sailor. As a teenager, he'd fished along the Jersey shore and uh, in small outboards and sailboats. But he then, gra- you know, sort of graduated to sort of his own um, boat, his own catch. And he actually crossed the Atlantic eight times, twice, two of those times. One of them was from Ireland and one of those was actually without instruments. He crossed the Atlantic without any navigational instruments. And is that where the idea came then? Hold on, if I can do it across the Atlantic, I can do it around the world. Yeah, I think he was kind of practicing. He he, he described where he got the genesis of the idea himself. He he said that... um, he was, it was 1974. He was on his way back from a trip to the Azores. And he two things happened. Firstly, the compass light, uh, which had been exposed, seriously exposed to like salt water, salt water spray, it began to fail every single night. And as he said, no compass light uh, at night, no compass. And then the second thing was they, they encountered a hurricane um, they, they they met the at this edge mm. of the hurricane, and heavy seas wrecked the the steering gear, the self steering gear. So he completed that voyage sailing by the stars, and he figured that if he could navigate without instruments at night, perhaps he could also do so by day. And he then started studying a like how he could steer, if you like, um, by by using the wind and the waves as references. And that's and that's what he did. Wow, OK. Now I want to ask you how you use the wind and waves in a moment. But he has this little acorn planted then after that trip to the Azores that he could do it, he could do it around the world. How did he go about preparing for that? Um, 
he, he actually said it was easier to go than to stay because, and people talked to me about courage. He said, I don't know anything about courage. All I knew was I just had to go out there and try it. So he, 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 his, he just prepared for it. His wife insisted, by the way, on one thing. There were only two people who, who, who believed he could do this. One was himself, obviously. Mm. The other was his wife, Blanche. And Blanche insisted on one condition he could do this. Okay. A sextant and a clock and a compass and a radio were stored below decks in the bilge, actually, in a sealed locker only to be opened in emergencies. Okay. Uh, they weren't, it wasn't actually opened. But by all means, go and try it, but don't die on this mountaintop. <laughs> exactly. All right. So, so, so tell they, us about the voyage itself then. The voyage itself, they set off um, in late December 82 in his, his catch, the uh, cutter, rather, the Globe Star, with a two-man crew. Um, they stopped at various ports along the way. Uh, Cape Town, where there were 22 letters from Blanche waiting <laughs> for him. Um, Hobart in Australia, where the fishermen were so impressed by his achievement that they held six parties each week for six weeks. 36, 36 parties. parties. Yeah. Jeez, he must have been right. Blanche also flew to Hobart and joined him there. And then another port of call for them was the Falkland Islands, where they were actually, this is, if you like, the early mid-80s. Okay. Yeah. Hairy time in the Falklands. Not that long after. And yeah. they were arrested for spying, oh, on suspicion really? of spying, yeah. But when the um, British, in this case, forces um, discovered who he was and that he was bona fide, yeah. they... they Your story of... couldn't possibly be true. You must be an Argentinian. <laughs> exactly. So, 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 uh, how did the journey go? All smooth sailing, I doubt it. Oh, totally, totally not. Um, they had a lot of challenges uh, along the way. They had some ferocious uh, weather, obviously. I mean, the, the journey, as I said earlier, uh, lasted guts of a year and a half. Uh, a year of that was actually all at sea, you know, not, not in ports, in, at yeah. sea. So they, they had some terrifying weather. They were lashed by storms. Um, they were becalmed, which is just as serious, for days on end without any wind. They were trapped in shipping lanes. If you think about it, in thick fog in a shipping lane, and you got that terrifying sound of the, the horns of the oncoming tankers. Um, they had at one point they had whales uh, bearing down on them like freighters. Um, another time, actually rounding the Cape of Good Horn, where the waters, the treacherous waters yeah. of the Cape of Good Horn, they did it in, entirely blind. They didn't know that they were going around Cape Horn. Oh, so no Zeus Canal. No, absolutely not. No. And in, 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 um, and on another occasion, by the way, their, their, their steel tiller, which had been described as indestructible, was ripped off in a, in a storm. How did he navigate that? You mentioned using the stars, but you also said something about the the wind and the waves and the yeah, ocean. Yeah, you see, no, nobody had ever done this, um, you know, in recorded history. Yeah. You know, without at least um, a compass, you know, uh, like which came in in the 12th century yeah. or a sextant in the 18th. Um, so he had to rely on his knowledge of the oceans and the climate yeah. and the geography. Yeah, because if you think of this part of the world, I the Vikings really never left sight of land, not for very long. Exactly. And maybe it's only in the Pacific Islands where they really, they went days and days at sea without anything. We don't really know how they did it. Yeah. Probably he, he, something like this. That's what gave him the, if you like, the courage or the determination. He believed that the ancient mariners, if you like, had done it. Yeah. And that they had discovered ways of doing it. So his ways, one of the, the many ways that he was able to divine the location that he was at 
were the colour and the temperature of the water, the presence of particular birds and insects were a, were a clue for him. And this, on one occasion, this is extraordinary, the sound of a squeaky hatch on you the boat. Explain that to me. Okay, okay. As I, as I understand it, um, they were becalmed. And when the wind started up again, okay. a crew member opened a hatch and it emitted a kind of a, a loud squeak. He knew, he was able to tell from the sound of that hatch the way the boat was facing because he knew that only dry air from the Antarctic could have caused it. Moist air from the opposite direction would have lubricated the hatch and, and the noise would have been different. Wow. It's incredible. Isn't it? How does the, the, the colour of the, like, is the ocean not blue, John? <laughs> to me and for you and me, <laughs> I, it's, it's blue. Brown but rivers he, and blue oceans, is that well, not the world the, we live in? The, the, best, the best example of this is actually, I mentioned Cape Horn. When they were, went around in the log, in the ship's log that they had after they went around Cape Horn, which they didn't know was Cape Horn, they noted we weren't able to sight any landmarks. So we've based our conclusion on firstly an extremely cold north wind of relatively short duration. And then here's the thing about the water. A change in water colour from blue to fairly dark, from transparent green to less transparent green, and then back to a dark transparent green as we proceeded from west to east. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that just incredible? It's, it's absolutely amazing. But as I say, he 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 knew that the ancient mariners uh, didn't have navigational tools, but they weren't afraid to go to sea. So he figured they must have known what they were doing. They probably made landfall. And then having done it, they were able to do it again and go back to where they'd been. And the nature of this slant, John, as we're talking about people we've never heard of, but we should have. At the time, though, was there much fanfare when he finished? Oh, yeah. He got... Uh, he got uh, but they had 36 parties halfway he, around. He got, yeah, he he got, got finished. A, he got a royal welcome home when he got back to New Jersey um, to what he described as one small step back for mankind. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he, there were lots of celebrations. Oh, by the way, he also called it a jolly romp. Oh, yeah. Just incredible, isn't like, it? You know, but he, he, he said he never, um, he never, through all the time, he never thought that they were done for. He said, "I had a cousin who married an undertaker called Frank, and when things were really rough in the middle of the Indian Ocean, I used to say, not yet, Frank. <laughs> You're not going to get me yet.' Brilliant. And what about later in life? Did he did he take on other any other wild adventures? He, apparently, his son actually said that he had fifty hobbies that kept him busy, and he was constantly busy. But he continued sailing." well into his 90, 95 I think was oh, when he called it a day and he got various awards and so forth and later years he owned a boat that did have GPS now he claimed that he didn't know how to use it and he had no intention <laughs> of learning um, but All he right. was uh, here's this, you know, think about it now in 70 years time you'll be like him you'll be mowing the lawn and cutting your own firewood. He was at the age of 100. Well, I, I doubt I'll be sailing around the world anyway. Listen, John, absolutely fascinating stuff as always. That is John Kettler with the story of Marvin Creamer. 